Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. And hello, Andy. Hello, Ryan. <laughs> and hello, everyone out there in the ether and the inner. Welcome to Dismembering Horror, episode 153 of Dismembering Horror, the podcast show where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslan, <laughs> and also sometimes a guest, we dismember a horror film. Every week we talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy. All under the guise of getting together as friends and just trying to have fun, uh, well, doing just that. Picking them apart, seeing what we can gleam, seeing what we can learn by delving into the darkness. And today, we're very excited to have uh, well, a friend who fits that description exactly. You could call him call him the godfather of this podcast, I think you could say. He was my friend who said, have you ever thought about having a horror podcast? But in that period, that post-college, pre-30s period, he and I, we binged all the major horror franchises, uh, all the not-so-major horror franchises as well, and plenty of other slashers and found footage and just everything you could think of under the sun to boot. He is also a PhD of mathematics, which I think will be a fun, uh, fun perspective to have on this episode specifically. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew Williams. Wow, that was quite an introduction. I am, uh, I am happy to be here. Longtime listener, first time guest, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yep. And this, and this is a great entry. This is probably one of my favorite uh, mayhem on a spaceship films of all time. Uh, so I was, I'm very happy to be here for this particular episode. Uh, great. Well, yeah, no, why, why I, I remember we had talked about you coming on the show or, or you had mentioned maybe you submitted this film, but yeah. Why this film out of all horror films, did you say, I want a guest for that one? I, I don't know. I think I have some personal, love for this film because of my history with it. It was definitely one of the movies that I rented on VHS from uh, not even Blockbuster, but from like the tiny VHS collection attached to the grocery store that my mom worked at. <laughs> it was like a single room that they had turned into a video rental as to augment their grocery business. And it was one of those cassettes that I picked up and you know, you see the, like three or four stills on the back and you're trying to figure out like what is going on in this movie. And uh, I was just intrigued. It was sci-fi horror, which is a pretty narrow subgenre that I really love. And it just seemed like some disturbing stuff was going on in space and I was <laughs> all about it. So I definitely <laughs> took it home. And as usual, I would wait until my parents go to sleep 
and then sort of pop it in the VCR and I would sit on the floor in front of the TV really close and just, you know, just watch horror movies. And this was one that really made an impression on me. And uh, yeah, I was interested to revisit it. It's been a very long time since I've seen it, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's just got a lot of elements that I really enjoy. It's it's a, I think it makes great use of being set in space and uh, it's just got a lot of creepy stuff in it. And it's more than <laughs> yeah. just a, a standard creature feature because I think a lot of what I was used to at the time in you know space horror movies was you know some kind of creature on the loose, some alien. Uh, but this was something very different. Well, it's cosmic horror, which I know you have a soft spot for, as do you, Tim, as do many of us. Lovecraftian, you could say. <laughs> yeah, I yep. almost... I almost hesitate to use the word Lovecraftian. I feel like it's it's losing a bit of meaning now because people overapply it. But I yeah. I do like the elements of this story that are you know science has gone too far and we've uncovered some horrible forbidden knowledge from you know the the nether zone and it's come to haunt us all. Right. So it's it's got right. Lovecraftian themes in it, even if the the mythology of the movie is very like conventional kind of Christian heaven and hell stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we'll get to all that, what worked, but you're right. Yeah, that's why I say cosmic horror first. I think that's more appropriate. Don't need to use Lovecraftian when they kind of mean the same thing. Tim, uh, I'd love to know what your history is with this movie, if you have any. Or... Um, I don't remember. I think I kind of similarly just grabbed it when it came out on VHS or whatever. I This is 97, right? So Yes. Yeah. I don't think I saw this in the theater. But it's possible. <laughs> I don't remember. Let, I remember yeah. I remember thinking it was cool as a kid. That's that's for sure. Um and I remember watching it maybe, oh, I don't know, 10 years later and being surprised. I was like, wait, this is, there's a lot going on here that I don't <laughs> remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, this time around, I think I actually watched it fairly recently too before we pulled it for for this. So, you know, it's somewhat fresh for me. I mean – like, I'm familiar with it. It's not like I've watched it 20 years ago and now I'm like, oh, right. Yeah. This movie again. I think for me, I remember watching it with probably who's my other main good horror friend watching it. You know, my original one watching it back in the day at his place, middle school, high school, something like that. Just remember it being late at night and just remembering the mood and some of the imagery I remember when watching, and I haven't watched it since then, but like the one thing I distinctly remembered was that quote um, when Lawrence Fishburne says, have you ever seen fire and zero gravity? It's beautiful. <laughs> For some reason, that just like <laughs> made it all come flooding back. It was funny. but uh, That's all it took. Yeah, even though I just watched it too, it's just so funny how like I remember just feeling more like a, a nightmare, you know, weird dream experience, the imagery, just the feel of it. That is the experience just when watching it. Because it's just kind of, I mean, we'll talk about it. But yeah, it's just funny how uh, watching it fresh, it's not dissimilar from how I remembered it. 
Well, uh, should we get into it more with the trailer here then? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. From 1997, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson and written by Philip Eisner, Event Horizon. About 300 this morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the Event Horizon. She's come back. The Event Horizon was the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster-than-light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space. There were 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Opening outer door. Came back abandoned. Wow. Those graphics are of a time. They are peak 1997. <laughs> yes. Vintage 97 <laughs> graphics indeed. And trailer, too, in a way. Great. Yeah. Very well, now much that so. we've done that, we can move on to our rating per our rating system. Our guest, we'd love to start with you. Would you tell yourself to avoid, stream, rent, or buy Event Horizon? I think if I was talking to my younger self who had had sort of just encountered this VHS, I would be clearly in the buy category. But now I'm a little bit older, having seen some more films of... (laughs) Uh, similar stripe. I think I'll go with a rent, which is what I actually did to watch it for this podcast. And I, I think that's a solid recommendation. It's not a perfect film. It's a very solid film. Uh, and I think if you have a soft spot for spaceship horror, right, a sort of very specific kind of subgenre of sci-fi horror, uh, then maybe you should go ahead and buy it. I don't know. You you could tell me more about the Blu-ray release because that sounds intriguing. <laughs> Uh, so maybe I could change my mind, but for now I'm at rent it. Well, indeed, I also rented the Blu-ray release. I did not buy it, and that would be my rating as well. I'll uh, echo your sentiments. It's, it's really fascinating too. I mean, we'll yeah, we'll get into it. It's just I don't know. It's one of those movies where it's got some really, really interesting, good stuff in it. You could say is great. But then it's just, you, you, as soon as you, I don't know, but then it falls apart in certain places. Maybe not as far as fall, falls apart. I don't know. And it, I try to acknowledge, too, it could be a taste thing. It's very much of a, a certain kind of movie that, uh, unless it's called Wrong Turn, may not be elevated to a buy it for me. <laughs> so anyway, we'll get into it. Tim, how about you? Uh, I pretty much agree. I th- I, I'm just, I'm a rent. It's got a bunch of stuff that I was like, this is suffering from some very specific problems, both story-wise and, like, technology-wise of the era. And in spite of that, there's there's some, I think, really amazing design, and there's some great just general fun 
that keeps it at a rent. But yeah, I can't, I can't just, it's, it's so dorky. I mean, there's certain things that I'm just like, <laughs> what? Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a rent. <laughs> I can be, I can be pretty endeared to all that. Um, but you know, the, the, <laughs> the cosmic core elements, I think you see that so rarely that yeah. that's really what pushes it to a high rent for me whenever that stuff is working successfully. Yeah, I feel like it had some ambition in in those ideas that make it really remarkable compared to other films of its type. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tim, I'd love it if you could uh, help steer our ship here with a summary, just for some context. And uh, Andy, oh, we can feel free to chime in too or uh, amend anything. Yeah, uh, 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 okay. <laughs> hmm. Where to begin? Okay, so there's a ship, a spaceship, called the Event Horizon. It's like Tim's in the pitch room meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my pitch. It's Alien meets Hellraiser. Meets The Shining. (laughs) Yeah, meets The Shining. There you go. That's the pitch. Um, Okay. (laughs) So the, the, the basic premise is pretty convoluted let's be honest so the event horizon was a ship that had this like high tech uh essentially wormhole tech and it went missing how long ago some number of years. years earlier i don't remember whatever it was but a while ago and it was a big loss big disaster that it disappeared or so they tell us and then sam neill who invented the wormhole tech has been recruited because the Event Horizon ship has reappeared. And he's, he's going to get on this other <laughs> ship, um, uh, whatever that ship was called, don't remember. And they're going to go Clark. salvage crew it. They're going to go get it and see His what happens. His name happened. is uh, Dr. William, quote, Billy Weir. Right. Weir, right. Um, okay, so that's the setup. And um, when they get to it, a bunch of dumb stuff happens. They make bad decisions as well as just stuff is going on. The ship is des- – uh, everybody's dead, but there's still some sort of weird like life force um, showing up on their instruments. And – well, it's young, it's young uh, Ensign Justin who sets off the chain of events, really. Yes, I suppose that's true. So Justin, yeah, so when they're exploring the, the adrift event horizon, uh, he goes into the, the room that has the wormhole tech thing, which is basically a mini black hole that's creating a singularity. Go Great. And he sees some weird stuff. He touches some black stuff. He gets sucked in, and that sets off the whatever evil force. And then uh, that evil force is it's a, it's a gateway to hell. It starts exploding the ship, and then just it kind of <laughs> infects all of them. They all start having like their worst nightmares are coming to life in front of them. Uh, everything devolves into madness. And um, and then the the remaining couple of people have to try and get out of there alive. 
And then you, I could say like uh, one of the central character conflicts is you have Lawrence Fishburne as Captain Miller, who is pretty quickly like, okay, let's get out of here. Let's blow it up. And Sam Neill's like, no, man, we got to stay. It's important. It's important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andy, did you get any other context out of this that could be helpful? Uh, no, that's basically it, right? They get the distress signal from this ship that's been gone, mysteriously gone for seven years. So they're sent on a mission to figure out what the hell happened to this. Yeah. Just pardon the pun. And then <laughs> they get they get there. They find out some real bad stuff happened. And usual space calamities ensue, right? Airlocks are blown. Ships are running out of oxygen. We got to fix things and get out of here and maybe blow up the evil while we're at it. And for some reason, that becomes very difficult to do uh, in the third <laughs> act. So, yeah, that's a, that's about it. It's actually a pretty simple plot, I think, uh, which yeah. is yeah. part of why I, I like it. It's something about being set in the whole spaceship rescue mode gives it a lot of plot device structure that says, okay, now we have to do this, now we have to figure out what happened, and now we have to leave. And that kind of, yeah. like, drives the movie along. And it, I think it it ends up being pretty snappy despite how silly it sounds out loud when you kind of describe some of it. It's only 90 minutes and it feels like it moves along. Yeah. Agreed. Snappily paced. Well, great. Since we're already touching on what worked, how about we move on to exactly that in our next section? What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. Cosmic horror. I just wanted to start there because that just gets me so excited. I already mentioned it up front. And yeah, even though, yeah, as we just said, it's kind of silly or whatever. It has that structure. But when trying to pick it apart, I feel like I could come up with a handful of reasons as to why it was doing that so well. Because like with cosmic horror, you know, there's inherently that question of, well, how do you do that without showing anything? <laughs> That's the challenge, you know? Yeah. And so, I think they, from, yeah. they did well with that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So we had, I had, the, there are the sounds of the recording at the beginning, just a hellish, ominous noise of a, with, where they can make out some Latin <laughs> from it. <laughs> um, but as soon as they play that, it's just like, no, uh-uh, that's, that's bad news. Um, I thought it was really smart, the gateway that, I want to call him Jimmy, Justin uh, puts his hand through and you know comes back throughout it. We never actually see through it or go through it, which I think is really smart. It remains a portal we never necessarily see the other side of. Um, we get, oh, we get one series of flashes that I think suggest what's being seen mm -hmm. later on. Uh, I can't remember exactly. When, does when, does Weir, Weir like grabs Fishburne, I think, and like he's like, see what I see or something like that. And you get like a really quick flash of just like, what would you even call that? It's um, he's projecting some visions into his into his head of like the horrible, you know, tortures yeah, like, of this 
other torture dimension. perversion like uh i don't know what to call it but it's a very specific thing it's like naked bodies people getting raped people having sex blood everywhere chains whips like it's it's vague though what's done in the ship by the previous crew and what's that or that's what true. is just their own perceived horrors of what could happen right that's true so yeah. i i view the imagery more as just like yeah exactly that like just sort of subliminal flashes of sort of the horrors in a non-literal sense is what it could be and i thought yeah. that's what was so just another effective way to get at an unseen horror was imagery that suggests a mood versus something literal. So, yeah, uh, yeah I had that. Um, the idea, oh, and then, yeah, also what makes me think like it wasn't the literal view of what they're seeing was uh, that idea, what's what's the line, where he, when Sam Neill, no, I want to say his name, when Weir doesn't have his eyes and he explains, oh, well, where we're going, you don't need eyes to see. That's just <laughs> that kind of like, brain-breaking paradoxical statement, but, like, we get it on some cosmic horror level, it makes sense, maybe. <laughs> um, and then, of course, yeah, then what we do actually see the previous crew doing, which is just, like, gnarly sex murder uh, going on, is, I think, what we construe tearing out their eyes and holding them out. Um, you know, just clearly something... People being driven crazy beyond uh, beyond any chance of saving them. That's always a, you want to put that in good cosmic horror. And then uh, lastly, I just had, yeah, then not defining it is really important of what the evil is or what this other world is, where they kind of refer to it as hell, but they're really smart to put in that line, hell is a word, the reality is much, much worse. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I, I like that they didn't get too close to conventional uh, kind of descriptions of hell. And yeah, they kept it vague flashes of these sort of, yeah, torture, murder, you know, bacchanal, whatever god-awful thing is happening there. And you're just left to kind of imagine it as whatever the most horrible thing is, right? That's what it is. That's what what happened. And yeah, yeah it's pretty effective, I think, in that in that way. Although evidently the the mythical director's cut had like longer sequences of that, you know, final log entry where the crew is yeah going completely nuts, uh, and yeah, so everyone's been talking about like what's on that footage. You know, it was longer, it was more disturbing, but I don't know. I almost think it was better with what we got as like just a, a glimpse, right? And a lot of it's done in kind of disorienting close-ups, so it's not even super clear where it's all happening. You just you get the imagery and that's and that's about it. It's like enough to give you a feeling of of what's happening. Yeah. I mean, Tim, did you have any thoughts on why the cosmic horror aspects were working for you? I didn't necessarily get hmm. to. The whole question of like what happens when you mess with space time and try to control it and the and the sort of the payback or the not payback maybe, but whatever the word would be, the consequences, I guess, of that, I think is the thing I like the most. I don't necessarily love their specific take on it, but I like the construct of that a lot. 
just this idea of like, you know, if you tear a hole in space time, what will be on the other side? Like it's all it's all good and fine when you come at it thinking like optimistically that this is going to be cool and you'll be able to travel quickly through the universe. Like that's what a great concept. But like, what are the consequences? So I, I like that component of the mystery of like, whoa, wait, what did we unleash potentially? So that's why it, it, this movie feels, and granted, I'd have to revisit Hellraiser, but it feels so much like Hellraiser to me. Um, so, you know, and I, I think that's cool. You know, this sort of Pandora's box, uh, yeah, concept element, whatever you want to call it, is is always exciting to me. Yeah, I I thought it served as like an interesting kind of antidote to the usual, uh, I don't know, almost utopian optimism of theoretical physics, right? Like whenever you read <laughs> books like A Brief History of Time or you watch uh, documentaries like Cosmos, you know, they're always talking about the wonder of science and all this amazing stuff that might be possible. And I, I like that this one kind of went to the place where, you know, what if we did do the impossible and it turned out to be a terrible idea? <laughs> And it just, you know, backfired in the most, you know, horrific way imaginable. And I, I liked that. Yeah, it's kind of a, an interesting take on on the darker side of what scientific achievement might bring, you know. Yeah, it's funny when I just, you talking about it that way makes me think of Jurassic Park, the idea of, you know, being able to harness nature and it running amok. So Sam Neill's uh, facing up against <laughs> a lot of that. <laughs> Which, Tim, this is our third Sam Neill going crazy in the face of cosmic horrors uh, film. I think it's yeah. our he's our most watched actor aside from when we did, of course, <laughs> Probably. The, the Scream movies and the Psycho movies. You well, know, sure. Yeah. All four of each of those. That's funny. Um, Individual, like, totally unrelated installments, and they all seem to have some similar threads. I mean, this is, I guess, his casting, right? Like, he, <laughs> yeah. he can kind of... This is certainly a thing that works. It's like he as an actor really walks this fine line between like the light and the dark. Like he's weirdly every man and also like evil incarnate. <laughs> like I don't understand <laughs> how one person exactly has that, but he does. It's very strange. You know, he can be – um What's his name in Jurassic Park? Grant. <laughs> yep. And then he can be like evil Sam Neill in in possession. Yeah. It's very he's he's a weird dude. I don't know. He's great though. I, I liked his performance in this one. I thought it it was interesting. He kind of he kept his sense of like wonder and and pride at the event horizon, right? And this gravity drive that he created, you can tell he's like it's his baby, you know, from beginning to end. In the beginning, it's still optimistic and kind of, you know, happy. And in the end, it's extremely dark, but he's still like dedicated to this thing he created. And he kind of keeps that throughout the performance. I thought, I thought it was very watchable. It was, it was a very good, good turn yeah, for him. He, he's has a bit of that, well, nothing can sink the Titanic attitude going into it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, which really quickly turns. I really liked that scene. Um, Especially, you know, for that his kind of character he's playing too, where there's like, oh, that's impossible, that can't happen, da 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 da. But then 
like in any good horror movie, you want to see that character admit at a certain point, I don't know actually what's going on. And they just, they did that hard in this movie where he's like trying to keep it together, but then he just lets it loose. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He just screams that over and over. <laughs> and as we're saying, the way only he can. That yeah, for, for most of the first half of this movie, he is like spouting techno babble to the other people who are like, no, something weird is happening. He's like, no, no, man, gravity waves are coming out. It's like <laughs> thermal expansion. He's just spitting it out. And yeah, by the end, he's just, he's lost, right? Yeah. Um, the last thing I had actually just on something that made the cosmic horror work for me is that element of, yeah, like we mentioned the summary, they're all seeing, like, taking physical form their their past horrors and what they're haunted by, so to speak. And it's becoming as, um, God, what's Lawrence Fishburne's character's name? Captain um, Miller. Captain Miller, as Captain Miller says, but the fire's real, you can feel, feel the heat, you know? Um, but just... <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, uh, it's so hard not to call him Sam Neill. But then we're seeing his wife over and over and the other woman seeing her kid. And just that idea, too, where they haven't necessarily told anyone these things. It's truly all in their mind. That is very cosmic core for me, the idea that you're, that when that line between your thoughts and reality become blurred and what can actualize, it kind of falls under... I don't know, maybe, if it, I don't know, if is this like a quantum theory thing? It's like, um, you know, that everything on some base level of existence comes from the same place. And so, uh, yeah, re- yeah. So, I don't, and, you know, as they get, they get into with this too. Um, oh God, what is this he says? Anyway, I'm forgetting, but just sort of mind what you're thinking. Don't know what's real or not. Uh and this evil knows it and can bring things to physical fruition. But what is physical necessarily when that can happen? Yeah, it kind of blurs the boundary between thoughts and reality, right? And yes, uh, I I agree that that did work pretty well, I think. But it, it's almost hmm. I'm I'm not sure that I would still call that a cosmic horror element, right? Because it in those scenes where people are hallucinating and seeing traumatic images related to their own histories and pasts in the ship. It's almost, I feel like that's when the movie resembles like a haunted house film. Yeah. Right? yeah. Cause it's, it like, well, it's like ghosts almost from their past that are coming back to haunt them. And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, this movie actually is a haunted house in space. It makes good use of, of space. It's not a completely uh, sort of blank transfer of science fiction on top of a, a narrative that would work anywhere else. But I still think it it has a lot of similarities with a ghost movie in the way well, that, that those was, visions are yeah, presented. I, I mean, that was a direct inspiration for this was um, the original, um, the haunting and the shining were the main influences. Um, but like Tim, I feel like what we've talked about when talking about ghosts and stuff too, will bring up, there's a dimensionality aspect to it, you know, of, is this somehow, you know, evidence of not just, Oh, there's a ghost, but there's some sort of, dimensional walls being breaking down or something like that. So I think with the context of what we know is going on in this movie, I'm just thinking in those terms of dimensional walls breaking down a little more um, forwardly, which is, uh, that's how it plugs in 
to the cosmic horror side of things for me. Yeah. Oh. The dimensional yeah, I like side. that. I mean, I think that's a cool kind of way to uh, have, have these two genres intertwine. Because just by introducing the gravity, um, you know, singularity stuff, you, you are knocking on the door of multiverse string theory, like all of this stuff that says like, sure, maybe we're just our reality is just one sheet in the fat in the many sheets of different universes. And sometimes they knock into each other and or like bleed through. So this is actually taking that pretty, pretty literally and saying, oh, no, we made a we made a machine that that's quite literally doing that, (laughs) you know, so. Yeah, these are the consequences. And so I, I feel like, yeah, we can get behind fairly easily that general premise. We're like, yeah, sure. Okay, I buy that. Yeah, it is it is a haunted house in in space. Um, but we've we've are almost given more foundational context for how that could even exist. Whereas like Yeah. Haunted house. It's a portal to hell in a, in the basement of a haunted house. It's like, well, why there? Why that house? Right? Then we have to go down that rabbit hole of either answering it or not. Like, why is the Amityville house a portal to hell? I, I don't know. Just cause. <laughs> yeah. Cause Long Island is weird and nobody wants to live. Like, it, that's not a good <laughs> enough answer, right? So, this actually kind of encases that with a a, a better context that we can go. Yeah, sure. Sure, Sam Neill created this thing. <laughs> it also solves the uh, the eternal problem of the haunted house film, which is why don't they just leave, right? That's by setting right. it in by setting it in space, you kind of get the perfect answer for that. It, it's claustrophobic by nature, and it it really works for the story. I think. Yeah. Well, talking about the setting, that was my other really big what worked for me. You could say was the sense of place. Like, this ship, I thought it was really interesting that it wasn't, like, the clean NASA aesthetic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, dude. It's literally, like, a medieval dungeon. It is. Well, well there's some direct influence. I'll explain in uh, Things of Note I thought was interesting. But, yeah, yeah, the layout of the ship, the way it's got... The it's got the engineering in the rear with the the spinning ball uh, black hole engine thing. And then the front, the way front of the ship where the crew is or whatever. And then this really, really long that just feels like, of course, it's just being set up to be blown up later in the movie. <laughs> this super long haul that uh, it was it was where they enter. But all of that, it just, it it feels cold clearly space is but i don't know yeah exactly it has that medieval feel to it it's like you wonder what uh sane dr weir was thinking when he designed it but uh even by default without it being old inside it has that that ghost ship feel to it by default yeah i would I think the set design was on the top of my list for what works in this movie. Like, a lot of it doesn't stand up to logical scrutiny necessarily. Like, why does he have to crawl <laughs> through this, say, through this tunnel of no circuit boards that that's what's there. to find this one sparking part? But it's 
I I totally forgive it because it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah, I love it. It's it's grimy industrial kind of like alien, but it goes further than that. Like especially around the engine room, it's like Giger-esque temple to darkness, right? I mean, it's <laughs> really goes past the uh utilitarian design of a spaceship and becomes something more like, you know, dark outsider art. You know, like all these spikes jutting into the engine room, like that just look horrendously dangerous, right? None of that makes any like practical sense, but it just, it looks, it looks uh, intimidating and it sets, it sets the mood from the very beginning. I, I love the spaceship. Yeah. Like, yeah, how you described it, Tim, the influences, it is very much just Hellraiser meets Alien, just how it looks. You have the, the trucker aesthetic that alien has and then exactly the spikes of hellraiser <laughs> yeah i love how in the in the i think it's the medical um whatever bay i guess there's li- there's like turquoise green tiling you know like or emerald it's more emerald green tiling like why that would exist on a spaceship is completely makes no sense but then there's also this like uh, chrome metallic sort of aesthetic that's going on in in maybe the mess or something like yeah those pillars those weird pillars like all of that makes no sense but like creates just such a tone and vibe that you're like i kept looking at it going like thinking what why what am i looking at like why is this here does it matter not really like I can get behind the 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 justification that it's like in order for this machine to do what it needs to do you need like you needed to design a ship that had all these different materials that harnessed the 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 mechanics you know it's like the elemental mechanics that needs to go on to open this portal needed like emerald walls and steel walls and you know spikes and iron and whatever else so i'm like yeah sure why not i feel like that's giving it too much either thought or credit or both i I don't don't know (laughs) hey well you know anything to 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 get on board with the uh absurdity of it well i think what makes i think what makes us just get on board with it is that the the rest of the the crew, the non Doctor Weir crew who are arriving, talk about how weird and creepy it is. They acknowledge how creepy they're. It's eerie from when they get into it, and they acknowledge it. So that helps us to be able to identify that with them, even without any explanation. There's also, <laughs> I like the dynamic between the crew and Weir because they almost all of them are kind of like. Ugh, this this nerd scientist with like he's gonna drag us down. Always doing, you know, always nerding it up and like procedure and science talk and blah 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 blah. And then they step on the shit and they're like, "You made this? Like you made this? Like, <laughs> yeah. bro, you you have some issues. Your your brain's a little twisted up, huh? Like, and they they all just spend the rest of the time just kind of side eyeing him. Like, something's up with this dude." <laughs> um any things uh that you guys wanted to highlight i think the specifically the design of the um what do they call the thing the gravity engine 
Yeah, or the Gravity it? Drive, I think. Gravity Gravity Drive, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Specifically the look, this sort of gyrosphere, you know, intertwining rings and the um the the black whatever, the the viscous or whatever you want to call it. That the way that that is made practically for the most part it seems the way it's lit and the specific composition of shots around it i think is the strongest visual stuff in the film there's a bunch of other stuff that i'm like how are these two shots existing in the same movie because (laughs) because yikes but that stuff is so good like even my girlfriend when we were watching it she was just sort of like for as kind of ridiculous as this movie is, there's some really good shots. And like she's a fine artist. Like that's like she's gonna notice that stuff. So it's it it is kind of amazing. Or maybe it isn't. I just think it's cool that there is at least from a, a like almost a tableau sense, there's some really beautiful stuff visually in this, in particular that gravity drive yeah, I uh, think that design. It- that engine room, it really sticks with you because I haven't seen this movie in like maybe 15 years, but I definitely, when I was about to start it up, I still had a clear idea of like what that engine looks like, you know, because it's one of yeah. the more iconic things in the movie. Uh, it's shown a lot. I think they make good use out of that room. Like a lot of plot points happen in there as well. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it's just a really interesting design. Yeah, the the gyrosphere kind of medieval torture implement combo uh, really sticks yeah, it's in like your they, mind. It's- <laughs> they took like they took like a medieval mace and you know a gyrosphere and like a pensive and they put it all together. It's like <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. Yeah. I also think. Well, I mean, on the same note, there the, there's they do a good job of defining different spaces very differently. And so, like, that whole sequence where Weir has to, like, reset a circuit, and he's essentially, you know, it's kind of your your classic, like, crawl through the, the duct work. But it's yeah. this weird, glowy, like, microchip green space. And, the, you know, they, they employ the Hitchcock... You know, um, whatever you call that move, the, rack the pull, focus. pull in, zoom out at the same time thing, or whatever. <laughs> pull out, zoom in at the same time, I think is what it is. You know, it's in Jaws, it's in Hitchcock. Like that whole sequence, we only see that space once. That's the only, it's not like a revisited place, it's not a plot place at all. It's literally just a scene to get him alone. And you could do that theoretically anywhere on the ship, right? Like you could just have him be, you know, in a in another hallway that looks like any other of the like spaces in the ship. But they're like, oh, no, no, no. This is the 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 weird circuit board like duct work place. Yeah. Let's let's do it full force and make it just its own thing. And I I think that stuff's really cool. It helps us move through the movie too because it's like any like this is the this is the smartest thing you can do when you're doing a isolated in one place movie 
every single room should have its this very, very distinct character to it. And so they solve that really simply. They just go, oh, yeah, he's got to go here and be alone. Make that look like nothing else we've seen. Yeah, I love how they they literally put the green backlit circuit board look on every surface of the duct. It's not like it's not like both walls are lined with it and the floor and ceiling are just normal metal. It's everything. So the green just fills the entire screen. It's very memorable. Uh, and yeah, the the plot purpose is minimal, right? He goes there and he finds this conspicuous sparking circuit board that he's like, "Oh, I'm just <laughs> gonna fix this." And it it matters so little. It just it sets up a little ghost interaction with his dead wife, right? But the the setting is so unique and and weird that yeah, uh, it really makes the scene stick. I think. Well, yeah, I mean, you guys are yeah, you're covering what all the the visual stuff is working about the engine room and it's offshoot room there. And I'm like thinking of how that's serving a good story purpose too with the, the little offshoot green room. It sort of answers the question of like, and yeah, the fact that all the walls are covered, it it sort of confirms, Oh, this is a very, this is indeed a very complicated device that requires this much circuitry to it. And the fact that it's a hidden little room is fun too. Yeah. But then, like, yeah, when uh, we're describing the um, the gyrosphere aspect to the the sphere, and how it's that interesting mix of old and futuristic, it feels like it. It I thought it struck a really that that really important or that level that that's really important for making us just buy into it as something that we could build to access something that is further beyond. In another realm, it has some the, the way that it moves that that pattern it's it's moving in it's it's cool yeah it serves that function of like oh yeah oh yeah I get how it works and it can help us access other dimensions <laughs> and create a black hole because it's moving this way because it looks like that <laughs> you know it just works yeah it's nice nice rumbly audio design too right it sounds oh, yeah. like these things are made out of stone. As they're mm, as they're turning mm-hmm. around instead of instead of something metal, it doesn't sound electronic, right? It sounds like older or some weirder somehow. I think I yeah. think they did a great job. Uh, did you guys have any other like overarching things you wanted to rule out, or or general things, or get on some moments here? Uh, I I would say in general the gore is pretty solid, yeah. like. We get set up well for it, um, which I think is smart. They, <laughs> Although everybody is sort of not that surprised, which I'm like, if you walked onto the bridge of a ship that you're – that has been missing for seven years and there's like literal body blood splatter like stuck on the walls in this one, one area – wouldn't you be a little more freaked out? No, the glove scared him enough already. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. I thought that was hilarious. Captain Miller loses his shit on the glove for a cheap jump scare, <laughs> but then the literal walls being painted with blood and bone is like, huh, what happened to those guys? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, oh, no, something, but- something strange must be going on here. Gore's great. The the flayed hanging up, the the empty eye hole sockets, the carving into one's body. Uh, the corpse sickle that gets dropped oh, onto the deck great. and shattered. That was excellent. Yeah, Very uh, Jason X. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Another movie that I definitely watched on VHS, like late at night in front of my TV, way too close. Um, yeah, no, Andy, any other uh, general things for you or if not, any specific moments you wanted to shout out? Uh, just generally, I think I kind of touched on it earlier. I think the the plot makes good use of being in space. Uh, that does include like kind of them having to hop back and forth between the two ships as things are going wrong. Uh, even though, I don't know, you might argue that some of that was unnecessary. I think it's it's interesting and kind of isolating for the characters. Uh, it also, yeah, I don't know, it really accentuates the the isolation of the haunted house vibes that they're they're stuck out there in this haunted ship and they're, you know, they're trying to get out and get home, but it's it's next to impossible. So, it's so far away too. Yeah. Yeah. So Neptune. I thought just in general, the, yeah, and the orbit of Neptune, uh, I thought they, they made good use of sort of setting things in space and uh, made it feel not like it was just a transplanted narrative. You know, it felt, it felt true to the, the genre of sci fi horror. Mm-hmm. I loved how it was just doing like straight up unabashedly doing the alien thing. Like in the first, as far as, the the crew and the sort of demeanor and dress that they have, even like the the banter and way that it's shot and coming out of the hypersleep or whatever. It, alien and aliens is that whole world. And it's something that of course it's great in those movies, but it's so it's general enough and it's just it's just great that it is like I I'm glad they do that. And I'm always down for that. Like not, not bad at all. They're just straight up doing the alien thing in that sense. Like, yeah, yeah. The, the trucker types in space. Give it to me. It's great. Um, how about some, uh, any specific scenes or things? (laughs) Uh, I have a lot of specific scenes that I, that don't work. Um, Okay. Not, not there yet. How about, I mean, specific elements I had. The uh, the wire work I thought looked great. So quick shout out to that before uh, Tim's, you're grinning like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I don't know. I, well, worked for me. Um, I like I, I, another just sort of general good horror movie thing kind of already mentioned, but the the clear conflict at a certain point between Weir and Miller of, and I love it how Miller's like right after they hear that of, you know, where he's like, let's get out of here. And Sam Neill's weird like, no, we got to stay. But uh, how <laughs> when Miller, like right after seeing the crazy, creepy, gory recordings, it's immediately like, all right, fuck this. Let's get out of here. <laughs> it's like, yeah. nope, we're getting out of here. We're leaving. We're going to blow it up on our way out. Yeah, uh, I actually that was nice. Re- it, I wrote that down specifically yeah, right after the final log entry plays and finishes. His his literal quote is just, we're leaving. That's the only <laughs> thing he says. And it's right after the video clip stops. And I thought it was, I almost laughed. Like it was just so perfect. Like, yes, that's, that's the right reaction. And yeah. I, I think I, to, to the point of what you were saying, I, I liked that there's a kind of protagonist switch in the movie because mm-hmm. uh, we start out waking up with Dr. Weir, right? Come, waking up from a nightmare and we're sort of meant to sympathize with him about his dead wife because he's got like a shrine of photos to her, right? Uh, yeah, but then pretty 
pretty quickly after we arrive on the event horizon, our loyalties start to shift away, right? And then we more follow Captain Miller, uh, who is you know the more lo- the more reasonable of the two. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Not a lot of movies of this type would do that. You know, it's kind of like it's a structure that you don't see that much of. I think. Yeah. Well, any other specific scenes or moments? I mean, I definitely just just a couple of the gore things. Like, although Justin's, um, whatever you want to call that, his his spacewalk, his decompression, um, whatever. Yeah. The but leading up to that, when his eyes start to go and like basically just like in whatever vacuum implode or something, the <laughs> that looks amazing and is yeah. uh, really like affecting and then dj the doctor i think he's the doctor right yeah um he him getting it's sort of like the 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 um, midsummer hung up like he's flayed open and hung up uh kind of eagle whatever that blood eagle i think is what it was called in in midsummer it that that whole design sequence and 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 weirs kind of rampage and you know spiraling into this weird monster person i think is all pretty solid yeah even if i don't think it makes any sense (laughs) i i liked that kill yeah he's he's suspended by hooks right which is more of the hellraiser vibe and (laughs) you know his stomach is cut open and is and then i thought was interesting is the organs are sort of laid out on the table underneath him right like it's a display which was yeah. all concocted in an extraordinarily small amount of time, by the way, because Captain Miller is like literally <laughs> running up to Med Bay because he knows DJ is in trouble having lost contact with him. And by the time he arrives, the corpse is like strung up in decoration. But <laughs> uh, but it was still pretty cool. Yeah. Did you did you guys like um the the body? What would you even call it? The body drop of the I forget her name. Um, the the design of her body. Uh, it's a woman whose son she you know hallucinates seeing her son and she climbs up on sort of the catwalk above the gravity drive and ends up falling off of it. I particularly like how her body hits the grating and the water that's underneath it. Like it's almost like. I I don't act. I mean, I wonder if this is what would happen. But like, she's it's a little bit like she's a balloon, just a blood bag. And when she hits, it's like water and blood just sort of erupt around her. It's pretty yeah. gnarly. I mean, it's it, a it is a gnarly looking fall death. too on the way down. Right, well, she hits a couple things oh, in yeah, that yeah. in that ventilation shaft on her way down, and then she lands on her back. And you can tell yeah. like her left leg is really broken out of out of position like yeah they they put some thought into that one uh and it ends up turning the coolant underneath the portal red so it's like a pool of blood now right and so it sets it up for the the final conflict in there i liked it yeah there's something visceral and horrifying about her landing in a shallow pool of water liquid or whatever it is like where you almost think i don't know that it could help help buoy her fall or whatever but no it's just all that much more gruesome we know it doesn't work that way it's just something she breaks that the grating more... too like the great walkway that she lands on is clearly broken by the force of the right. fall so it, it yeah. looks really yeah it looks really nasty 
Yeah, she doesn't die on impact. Uh, it's pretty, it's gruesome indeed. Uh, well, Tim, anything else for you? No, I don't think so. Well then, with that, we can move on to our next section and see what did not work. It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? <laughs> I think I, I want to criticize something, but I also want to recognize that it's not necessarily anybody's fault. But it is. But it's not. <laughs> what? <laughs> the, 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 the limited but moments of bad CGI in this movie are such a bummer to me. <laughs> Super unnecessary. Like almost everything in this movie could have been done practically and been totally fine and awesome. So put, it was put stuff put stuff if you want stuff floating floating around anti-gravity style, put it on a string, man. We've seen it a million times. It can be done. It looks great. Don't do this hack need like we like their computers, the CPU that tried to do that probably just like could not handle it. It just looks so dumb. It's like I, I get why you do it because they are thinking, oh, this I actually think that when we saw it as kids, we probably were like, oh, Dan, that looks really cool. <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't yeah. hold up. And I it bums me out because it's just unnecessary. On a CRT at VHS quality in the middle of the night, it probably looked a lot cooler uh, than right. my than my 4K rental on my <laughs> on my modern TV. It looks pretty dodgy sometimes, especially Ugh. the the globules of liquid coolant. That was probably the worst stuff. Yeah, it looked the only time they look good is when they turn back into actual liquid. Which yeah. is probably just stitched together, right? Like they actually practically dropped the the fluid and then they stitched that to the comped, you know, crap CGI bu- bubble. It it's just uh, it bums there, me out. Some debris in the corridor at the beginning, like a there's a plastic Dixie cup that collides <laughs> with something and makes the little <laughs> the hollow plastic ting as it bounces yeah. off something, and it's. It just is so distractingly bad. Yeah, it's it's hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of loaded up front, luckily. I mean, I had this down to the bad CG for sure. The floating objects at the beginning, and we get the globules, globules a bit throughout. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I had that down. I will say to offset it, didn't mention in what worked, though, just the model practical effects more often than not did look great and do hold up so they just make the cg look especially egregious though also yeah (laughs) i thought some of the some of the spaceship exteriors in the early part of the movie that were still cgi actually looked pretty good so i think like they clearly spent their time on on the ships and not so much on everything else but so not not all of the cgi was terrible and you're right there's there's not that much of it i don't think it like ruins the movie or anything but it is very noticeable I, I have another thing that I I I could I just help me understand the the decision making here. Why why are we in a cloud? <laughs> yeah, I okay. So I have a thing on that. It's supposed to be in the orbit of Neptune, 
But apparently they're like, they interpreted this as like, no, we're going to put it like in the atmosphere of Neptune. And I think the whole reason is they wanted the dark stormy night feel in the evil, you know, castle spaceship. Because there are several points in the movie where there's literal thunder sound effects happening (laughs) in the storm outside. And I, I kind of... I don't know, I gave it a pass at the time, but yeah, like it should just be floating out there in deep space, you know, but I guess they they really wanted that that stormy feel, you know, so it's like foggy outside the windows of the ship instead of just black stars. And I don't know why they went for it, but I wondered what? if there was a practical reason in terms of how how advanced their you know, their effects work was that by putting it in a cloud you can you can kind of you can kind of blur the edges but if you mm. put it in space and it's just a black backdrop like maybe their edges weren't clean in the, in the modeling i don't i don't know i mean that's such speculation no what it, i gathered was from the making of yeah no andy's right they really wanted that approaching the haunted house from the clouds okay. feel all I need, all I need, is one line, just one line, <laughs> to be like, yeah, bad, bad, you know, whatever. Ne- the gases of Neptune are, you know, there's a weird gas storm. Well, I'd be fine, but then it's like bleh, we're just in a cloud. <laughs> Tim, well, aside from clouds and CG, I mean, I feel like you <laughs> usually have more overarching kind of. <laughs> qualms with these kinds of films but (laughs) yeah yes (laughs) here's my big here's my big problem with this movie from a premise story point of view why christian hell i know it's sort of said that it's not really that but like it is it's still it i mean for all intents and purposes just just because they say this could be any any other realm or whatever they say does I not mean, make what we're seeing not that. And they use Latin in the film, so they're kind Exa- of prepping you for the Latin for thing Christian is hell. the thing that really make like kind of pushes me over the top. I'm like, you can't also do the Exorcist. Like, you can't it can't be all of these movies jammed into one movie. Like, I get it, I get what you're going for. You're kind of trying to play off of all of these things, but like. It's that thing that in the what's the 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 save the cat expression is um double mumbo jumbo, right? Like are we in a sp- <laughs> are, we're already mixing genres. We're doing haunted house in space. Just do it. You don't need to say it's hell. You don't need to say it's anything. You just need to say it's the other side. You just need to say we don't even know what's over there. And we would still be scared. Like you don't need to bring hell into it either. I get how the Latin did push it far in that direction, but that just wasn't an issue at all for me because it felt like these simple human minds trying to grasp this concept for what they're experiencing. And yeah. that combined with that that quote that I mentioned earlier that says, it's not hell, that's just a word. Like that, yeah. that took care of it for me in my viewing. If I saw a demon with horns, I'd be a lot less happy, right? I mean, (laughs) so they didn't quite go that far. They kind of kept it in the realm of, yeah, we're just using that word because that's what we would associate a dimension of pure chaos, right? Pure evil. 
as you know, uh, Weir pontificates when he has no eyeballs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so that's like what we would call it. But I did think that the Latin was sl- a slightly corny. The whole like mistranslation thing. It feels like a twist ending of a like a 1950s short story. I, it was save yourselves, not save me. But uh, so yeah. that was a little bit a little bit hokey. So maybe without that, I would have no complaint. I guess it but, could have just been English. Like I like the meaning of the words or what what is being spoken. I liked, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't know. There, there's this other kind of element too. Like I really like the fact that there's a, a crew that everything went bad, and we kind of are trying to we're waiting to find out what happened. But like. I just found it confusing and and like uh, confusing. I don't know what else to call it. Like the the ship captain who's speaking in Latin showing up like covered in blood and on fire in front of Captain Miller to me makes no like I don't get the connection, right? Like I don't understand why what does that have to do with anything? Like why <laughs> Would that captain is it just because they're both captains? And he and but he says he's like the you guy, you killed me or something like that, right? The guy covered in fire is not the captain of the event horizon. That's a who is a, it? That's a character from Captain Miller's past. It was a bosun, uh, which is like a I don't know a naval term for right, know, right. A lieutenant, and who he was trying to save from a burning vessel. That's what the whole, like, have you ever seen fire in zero gravity? It's beautiful. That whole monologue oh was about an experience from his past. So the burning guy is from that. So that's his ghost, just like the the boy with maggots in his legs is, is the <sighs> other you know character's ghost and so on. So, yeah, it's not actually the captain. In fact, Got the it. previous crew's role in the story is quite small. It's pretty much contained in that log entry. And the way you, you know, figure out what happened to that crew is by what's currently happening to this crew. And by the end, you know, when Sam, uh, when Weir, Dr. Weir goes, you know, completely nuts, you basically kind of get the idea that, okay, this is, you know, how the descent into madness kind of finished for the previous crew. And they all got tortured to death, I guess. Uh, Okay. That makes sense. I don't know. That that kind of gets into my issues where like I didn't quite see the clear line of like where our crew are with is headed. They're just trying to get out of there for the most part. Like it doesn't yeah, they're seeing things, but like, you know, the the one of them, she's seeing her her son or whatever, she just falls and dies. You know, it's like it's trying to kill them off, not drive them as far crazy as the first crew. So it was just sort of like these how the evil are working cons- inconsistencies for me. I don't mm. know. I I think I think the explanation for that is that the original crew goes through the gateway and oh, goes yeah. to hell, right? Right, right? And is there for okay, 7 right. years. Whereas now it's returned for reasons unknown. And what's the evil that's now inhabiting the ship is kind of like a remnant, right? It's not at full power. Uh, you know it. what it's not quite the same thing that the previous crew had seen <laughs> you know what you're okay well tell me if that can help explain what else i guess wasn't jiving on, on this viewing which was like the progression and logic i guess of uh we are going crazy like he's he he seems like he's normal and sane but then 
But then as soon as like the crazy footage that they see from the past crew, they see it, he, and they're like, let's get out of here. He wants to stay. There's like no hesitation on his part at all. It seems like he's already gone crazy because he he turns and says, oh, I've always lived here. or I belong here. Something like that. I am home. And it's, it's so... But then we also see then he's still getting the hallucinations of his wife. Like he is still being driven crazy. Like he's still the weir that we started off with. And then yeah. that gets muddled even more with like when um, the, what's his face, dude? The, when Justin, you know, gets gone, goes crazy and is in the airlock. He's, there's the moment right before the airlock uh, opens where he turns back to his sane self. So then that makes me go, okay, is it more just like a, a possession element? Like that's different from them going insane. You know, that, that's a different kind of trajectory, you know, than being possessed, which then I'm like, is that what was happening to Sam Neill? He's not going crazy. That, that was all confusing for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have an explanation for that one. That, that one is <laughs> definitely kind of muddy. Uh, I especially thought it was weird when after Weir delivers the line, like, I am home, and he kind of backs up into the darkness. You know, <laughs> it was like a cool moment. But then he, yeah. goes to the, he goes to the engine room, to the gravity drive, and he sees... Uh, and I forget the character's name, but the woman with her son who's in the wheelchair who has That's just Peters. fallen that her Peters, who has fallen to her death, right? And he sees her and he cries out like, oh, no, Peters or something. And he goes over there. So he's like back trying to like he cares about the crew again. It's not really clear. And then I no. thought this is a relatively minor quibble. But another thing that bothered me was there's sort of two uh, endings to this film. Right there's the first one where Weir is uh, cut out his eyes and sewn sewn up his face a little bit and looks <laughs> pretty awesome, and you know he's talking to, he's got the gun and he's like what makes you think I'm gonna miss and then he gets blown out the window of the Event Horizon right but then he comes back because quote the ship brought me back how that works I have no idea but it also restored his eyes for some reason I thought that yeah. was one of the weirdest. <laughs> missteps of the movie was that he's got this creepy scarred up face and I think he's naked. I can't quite recall, but it looks like there's only a few shots of him in full body and it looks like he's naked except for these horrendous scars all over him, but his eyes are back and they do close-up shots on his eyes while he's talking and delivering this, you know, this terrible vision to Captain Miller. Like, I just didn't get it. Like, wait, why did we have to kill him off twice and then, like, change up his makeup design in the middle? I, it's really unclear. <laughs> Maybe it was a reshoot. <laughs> Could be. I actually think there's a there's an easy solve for that, too. Don't blow him out of the ship. Blow him into the gravity drive. Like, if if you shot him into the, the you know, the portal, yeah. then I totally buy him coming back. Yeah, and he comes back stronger and spookier than ever. That would work great, yeah. Uh, but they – I was confused because I'm like, wait a minute. They just blew him out the front window and isn't that the bridge that is the escape pod anyway? So is – You know what I mean? There's these little things and I'm like, what? I'm sure there's, there may like be they're... a justification, but like, come on. Well, it feels like the justification within the story is like the ship can just do whatever it wants. But that just gives it <laughs> too much personality. It's not, I don't know, it shouldn't be like uh, 
someone's just back there is Oz pulling the strings. It's a it's a force. It's a cosmic force. Yeah, um, I agree. Real quick, it's a little we're, we're, too much movie convenience, I think, in that one. Yeah. Uh, real quick thing I wanted to say, because uh, you reminded me of it, I wanted to mention and what worked uh, was the way when he's blinded and has has his eyes shown sewn shut, when he can, quote, see people coming up to him and has like super senses and is like <laughs> looking right at them, even though he can't see them. I love that kind of thing. But yeah. anyway, yeah. No, no, Andy, I think that's it. It's the movie convenience thing. Like same with, like what I mentioned, when Justin gets blown out of the air, air duct or he gets blown outside, it's like... Uh, it was just because they wanted that moment of him being scared before it opens is why he flips back. Like that was just an excuse for that movie moment. And same with that. I got taken out of it when um, Peter's they're like about to about to get away. And it's just leading up to her fall when she sees the kid. And when she sees the kid, it's, I just, you just don't buy it. Like really? She like, they know they're seeing things and the ship is making them see things that she just so assuredly follows the kid up all these levels when she's like, we got to go now, get the oxygen things, move, move. It just did not buy that. Again, it's just because the movie needed it to happen, logic. Yeah, it seems like the the ship's ability to kind of influence their actions kind of rises and falls as required by, you know, whatever scene is coming up next. Yeah, it, do, it doesn't... It doesn't have a clear set of rules, really, as to like yeah. how this possession is working. Yeah, that is a that is a huge issue. All what it, it's you can get away with a lot up to a point, but when when there are no rules, <laughs> like we're waiting for a time when we can go. Oh, that's why. But we don't really like. This is just. I think I, I think this is why so many people like this movie who saw it when it came out is because like it is just the greatest hits of every cool idea from every cool movie. Like that's all it is. And they're just like they're fast and loose about it. Let's just just barrel forward and people will leave going that that was cool. Like yeah. I remember the Justin getting like out the airlock and and you know Fishburne saving him, quote unquote, saving him. Seen as a kid, being like, "Dude, that was sweet." Yeah. And then I watch it now, and I'm like, "That is one of the hokiest, dorkiest looking scenes." The the wire, the wire work, the way that he like preps for the jump, it, like it all looks so dumb to me now. So, but it, when I was seventeen, eight, whatever I was when it came out. I was like, yeah, sweet. The the way he, though, he's uh, uh, propelling himself in the long <laughs> ladder outside. I really liked that, though. I don't yeah. know. That was fun. That was cool. Yeah. Um, oh, man. <laughs> I think that one of the most egregious things in this or any film is the baby bear, mama bear thing. It, I... I it angers me to no end. It's so unnecessary. It doesn't make us like relate to these characters. In fact, it makes us go, ooh, that's a little strange. Like grown adults <laughs> calling each other baby bear and mama bear. Like, come on, guys. Like, what are we doing? It was so clearly supposed to be endearing and like reveal they had this whole relationship and backstory, but. <laughs> well, 
newsflash, that's not how you do endearing. Yeah. I think <laughs> perhaps my biggest complaint on the character end, though, is Cooper, the comic relief character who is not Woof. very funny. Uh, and I don't know what it was exactly. Was it the writing or the acting? But I just, I felt like the whole character of Cooper felt more like a performance than an actual person. Totally. Like it feels it, like it's got to be the lines, like the, when he's coming. Yeah, no, I agree. I had that down too. When he's, <laughs> that was just such a weird sequence when he's out in space, you know, when we we think he's gone forever, but he's, surprisingly calm in a way. All right, so what do I have to do to get back? But then when he's flying back to the ship after propelling the oxygen out, uh, here I come, fuckers, whatever that is. It's just, yeah, it's yeah, so it's, it's bad. Yeah, and that your that exact scene was probably like my the peak of my annoyance with the character because, yeah, he's like, we've seen this scene in other movies, right, where the astronaut is decoupled from the spaceship and is floating out into into empty nothingness and they are screwed unless they can find a way to like very narrowly propel themselves back to the ship right so you're kind of i was waiting there thinking like whoa this is kind of a serious dramatic moment but no he kind of like tries to play it for laughs and then it yeah. it also feels really rushed because he's just like, what do I got to do? Oh, I got to blow my air tank. Okay, here we go. Hope this works. And it it literally is like 10 <laughs> seconds of him like pressing buttons. And then he's flying off magically on, on the right trajectory uh, back to the spaceship, which is not even in the shot. You know, it looks like he's just right? propelled himself in a random direction off this debris. But, but he makes it back for the finale, right? And well, yeah, it was just... It was bad. And a lot of his it's dialogue cartoonish. is just That's hard. the problem, right? Like, it, it's really in this cartoon realm of, like, you know, swooping back in, saying a, a, a fun line. Although I didn't think it was fun. But I'm just saying, like, that's the attempt. And it's, and it's just, God, it just falls short. It was very telling in the commentary track. I think it was the producer at that moment who laughed when that line happened like oh <laughs> yep i guess you think it's funny okay <laughs> yeah like that whole that whole character there wasn't there wasn't one point in there where his interactions with the other characters felt funny or realistic it just it felt like he belonged in some other movie right like he just came from another yeah. film entirely yeah well, I did listen to the whole commentary and watch the making of that was actually longer than this film. Um, no way. <laughs> yeah, by like six minutes. Oh. It's, it's crazy. Uh, but do you guys have anything else? If not, then we have stuff for things of note. Oh, man. I don't I don't know. I'm sure I could think of something, but why why even bother? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. All right, you're shaking your head, Andy. Then with that, yeah. we'll move to our next section. Things of note. Things of note. <laughs> this should be interesting. What I wanted to keep uh mentioning when we were talking about like, wait, how, how do they explain that? Why would they do that? What's the explanation for that? 
was the the motto of the directors on this film. I don't know if it's this film or in general, all across the board apparently was more is more. <laughs> so <laughs> that can be fun when it you don't question a moment and it just works. But you know, when we're talking about why is it arriving in clouds? Why does Sam Neill stay that say that line and then step step back into the darkness? It's it comes out, it is just cool. That's that's the more is more thing. And I don't know, it's just interesting to think of when that can work in a way, and then also just when it doesn't. That seems like a pretty fitting motto for Paul Anderson's line of work. Uh, having <laughs> yeah. seen many, but not all of the Resident Evil films, uh, more yeah. is more seems like his kind of jam. Uh, <laughs> although he is responsible for the the perennial classic Mortal Kombat so you know, I can't I can't <laughs> rain on his parade too much because I absolutely loved that film as a kid. I've I've mentioned this before. I think I saw Mortal Kombat five times in the theater. <laughs> nice, <laughs> and not a penny wasted. <laughs> uh, well, some more insight onto who he is and all that. I thought it was interesting how he kind of acknowledges, you know, some criticism in that way. Uh, He's repeatedly stated he considers himself a, quote, populist filmmaker who only cares about whether his movies entertain the audience and make them cheer in the cinema rather than their reception by professional critics. Which I think shows through in this film, which has like a Rotten Tomato rating of something like 23%, uh, but an audience approval rating of almost like 89 or 90%. Like people like this movie. <laughs> But critics do not. I don't know, uh, but what is that? Does I don't know. What do you guys think? Does that say something about like the... Um, I mean, what about the whole like trusting your audience to be... I don't know. It sounds so condescending to say like to be smarter as if people who like this aren't smart. But you, you know what I mean? I mean, why why can't he do both in a way? I don't, I don't know. I don't think you have to do both. You know, like professional wrestling exists. And like, peep, there are, there is a fan base. There's a, 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 it's for people who like it and people like it. And like, I think a big part of the audience is not so much based on identifying and keeping an audience and like saying, oh, this is for this person. It's more like, this is for the person at the time when they need this. And, like, I think that's fine, actually. Like, well, whatever. It's not a movie. Look, there is no way Paul W.S. Anderson is going in saying, I'm going to make a movie that the critics will love. Like, that's not – he knows that. He's not trying to do that. So the problem is when you try to appease both. Usually it doesn't work, right? Like, or you get – you just – you know, you catch lightning and and something is is amazing, but I think this is actually okay for 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 being that thing. Yeah, no, like also in his defense, I watched randomly a couple years ago. I want to say it was like the third or fourth Resident Evil movie, and it's like what it's doing. It's just doing it so hard. It's fun just to like 
plug into whatever that is. It, it made me feel like a 12-year-old again, you know, of just like, oh, here's the cool shot of the guy in sunglasses and rockets going off. It's just, there's, yeah, it's a certain kind of fun. And it is, I think it is unfortunate that a filmmaker who happens to do that really well can be like looked at as less of a filmmaker uh, from maybe someone who might make more respected films, but probably who couldn't make that kind of movie if they tried at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I mean, I don't know. If you know that that's your goal, I think that, that great, like awesome, go for it. Yeah, I think there's room in filmmaking for both both sides, right? And it's kind of getting at, somewhere the the division between art and entertainment right yeah. like what is the yeah. purpose in making this film is it to is it to entertain those watching it or is it to sort of some, achieve some kind of artistic statement right and i don't there are pros and cons to both both sides and artistic film can end up being very uh kind of navel gazing right or self very selfish right a reflection of just the director's inner world Whereas a, an entertaining film might end up being, you know, not exactly hanging together on an intellectual level, or might have some flaws here and there, but there there can be benefits to both. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of torn. I think that directors should always be striving to achieve something remarkable, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to like shun the notion of entertaining people who are paying to see it, right? So I don't know. Yeah, I, but I guess. I, oh, I was gonna say one one thing. Here's here's a I think a good litmus test. When we watched um, the last key, what what is that? Insidious, the last key. I think that's what they're trying to do with that, but they end up offending certain sensibilities in a way that is actually like borderline, maybe even problematic. It's like it's derivative in a way or it's or it's just kind of like you're missing the mark in in a broader sort of emotional sense and i think this movie in spite of i mean not really thinking it's a good movie it doesn't suffer from that flaw it's not offensive it's not like it's not missing some mark it's just it's a train that you get on and go to the end of the line and get off and go, okay, it's a, like, it's exactly a roller coaster ride to me. Like, it's like an amusement park ride. And you don't go, you're not there to say, you know, were the, like, was the pitch of that angle, like, beautiful? No, it just, like, you're just on the ride. Just go on the ride and be good with it. So I don't know. I, like, it's just kind of fine. <laughs> well, what's cool? What's cool about this movie, though, and that's why I tried to highlight in the what worked is that by doing the cosmic horror elements surprisingly well in some areas, it does kind of I don't know, uh, I don't know, re- reach to something beyond <laughs> kind of how you're describing it in a way. But no, Tim, I mean, if we're just trying to find where this line is. Like, so would this movie had been a buy it for you had it addressed those? things that you mentioned and what did not work or would if it had done those changes or addressed those things that didn't work for you would then it not be the kind of movie that it is trying to be 
Ah, that's an interesting question. So because this is a genre that I really love, had this movie tied the th- the narrative threads and plot threads into a little bit of a broader like meaning like uh, with with either pointing at a speculative answer that we can kind of leave wondering about or an answer answer i would have loved it way way more right like it also i mean there's a, there's sort of i like this protagonist switch but we end up not even getting the the protagonist that we switched to doesn't even end up being a survivor. So there's a little bit of a flawed in, flaw to me in that general construct um, that like there's just little things that I think if you spent a few more drafts on this movie, you could nail something really amazing. But it wouldn't lose its popcorn, uh, get on board with it appeal you were describing. I don't think so. I mean, I almost wonder if this movie was a half hour longer, if it wouldn't be just like magnificent. Yeah. Well, uh, Andy, same question to you. Boy, that's a tough one. Yeah, that kind of that kind of cuts to the heart of the issue, right? Because <clears throat> I, I was making some kind of possibly false distinction between movies as art and movies as entertainment. And at the end of the day, I think, yes, it's probably possible that this movie could have been made better uh, via some changes without sacrificing its kind of entertaining appeal, right? There are plenty of what I would call five-star films, like perfect or near-perfect films that are very fun and entertaining for the audience, you know, that they kind of sweep you away. Uh, So I don't think that there's some essential difference between something that achieves high art and something that entertains the audience. You can definitely do both, and the ideal perfect film does both. Uh, But, I don't know, achieving that perfection is often practically impossible, right? So I can have some respect for a director going into a project with a focus specifically on entertainment over trying to, you know, achieve something visual, perhaps. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's still fair to criticize this film on the same spectrum that all films exist on, in that, yeah, it could have, in a theoretical sense, been better, tighter, if they, you know, had adjusted the plot or done a few things differently. So, uh, but I, yeah, I don't think it's inherently... Uh, incompatible to have an artistically beautiful film that's also uh, kind of a thrill ride for the audience. Yeah, Yeah, to paraphrase uh, the quote in this film, I think uh, art and art house and popcorn entertainment, they're just words. And like, you can take, you know, the, the piano you can call entertainment and I think you can call Mortal Kombat art. You know, it's like, it's just all... All, all just movies, which you can just all call as art, and you can also all call it entertainment. But it's just, uh, but the the words do help us at the same time distinguish types that we r- universally ring one way or the other. So that's why it's interesting. Um, well, we have our mathematician here, and there was a quote in this film when they he says something like, "Well, I don't know if I can explain it to you. What's going on? It's all math." So. 
I'd be curious to know where was your math mind going in the math explanation scenes? Well, I I liked it. I that was sort of the one part where he borrows the um the calendar girl picture to do his little explanation of how the gravity drive works was actually my favorite bit of techno babble in the film. Uh, and I think it touched on a couple things. One was just nostalgia for the time when I first watched this movie on VHS, when I was sort of just getting into math and I thought, you know, books like a brief history of time about you know strange physics were just really mind blowing and I loved the idea of sort of folding space. I thought that was kind of fantastical, right? Like, what would that mean to fold a three-dimensional space? It's easy to visualize folding a two-dimensional piece of paper, but folding three-dimensional space, what does that even what does that even mean? I loved thinking about that, and I still like thinking about it. So it kind of brought me back to that place. Uh, but also an interesting thing is this um, this paper folding explanation, I think is almost... Uh, lifted pretty closely from A Wrinkle in Time, uh, the book by <laughs> Madeline Lingle, which also became a movie not too long ago. Uh, but there's an explanation of what they call in that in that book the Tesseract, which is actually just a name for a four-dimensional cube in math, uh, which is not exactly related. But they they take the same explanation of like if you wanted to travel to some faraway place, then you could fold space so that two far formerly far away parts are actually the same place, and then you could move and then unfold. So I loved seeing it kind of uh, played out on screen. I would watch Sam Neill explain a lot of things. Uh, it's just kind of entertaining the way he's like his <laughs> cadence of speech kind of delivered that. I really liked it. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was a an interesting kind of idea. And it is actually one of the few proposed methods of potentially possible faster than light travel, uh, which, you know, theoretically you could do. Of course, the problem would be that such a gravity drive would require a preposterous amount of energy. You know, you'd have to like collapse an entire star or something to be able to to generate this much force, to bend space so that much. a black but, hole would be enough power. Yeah, right? Like, if you kind of buy the explanation that they're literally using a collapsed star, an artificially created collapsed star, then sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, how exactly does a, an electrically powered ship generate that much energy to create a black hole? That's the leap of movie magic. But uh, it's fun. Matter. It's, like, it's like just enough plausibility to get us there. You know, I feel like the lot, the, the movie, at least in terms of the gravity drive, uh, did a pretty good job of putting enough of a physics veneer on it to kind of carry the story, but not globbing it on too much or insulting the audience by just wave hand waving it away. So, you know, I was, I was excited to see dimensional folding on, you know, on screen. That was, that was good. That dimensional folding on screen, you said it is, though, still just a 2D explanation of it. And then as a kid into this day, you're still thinking about what a 3D version of that would look like or what that would look like in reality. What do you think that would look like? Well, in reality, if you want to go to like general relativity physics, you'd need a four-dimensional version of it, right? Because it turns out space and time aren't different things. They're actually the same thing. They're parts of the like this four-dimensional fabric, which is already bent, 
right? Gravity is just the bending of space and time together as one thing. So thinking about four-dimensional objects is a lot of fun. Your visual intuition breaks down completely, so you have to think through analogy. So the piece of paper is actually a very effective teaching tool because two dimensions is something you can handle, right? Bending two dimensions is something your brain easily understands visually. Uh, And the four-dimensional bending from a mathematical perspective is actually extremely similar to the two-dimensional paper bending. It's just a few more variables to keep track of. But the problem is that when you have a few more variables, your visual intuition of what a four-dimensional shape even looks like is basically completely shot. So you have to kind of go back to the to the piece of paper and just kind of use the use your mind to sort of extend the analogy to four dimensions and the math works out okay, which which lets you sort of justify what you're saying. But uh, you're still visually kind of stuck with that that piece of paper. So yeah, I I think about the bending of four-dimensional shapes a lot when I think about gravity and, and general relativity, but actually visualizing it is basically impossible. So you kind of you return to the you know to the uh, to the nudie calendar image, right? Folding the two parts of uh, the cover girl to meet to meet one another. Right. Well what but what does that example not get at? What does the example of the two-dimensional shape not get at? Yeah. Uh, Well, so one thing to consider is when you're bending a two-dimensional sheet of paper so that two parts of it touch, you're using the fact that the two-dimensional paper sits inside three-dimensional space where you are, (laughs) right? You're using the third dimension to move the paper through so that you can make those two parts touch. So where the, the question lies for the, if you're doing this to the universe, right, if the piece of paper is the universe, then what does it mean to have space outside the universe through which you're bending it to make two parts of it touch? Like, does that even make sense? The universe is sort of, by definition, everything that is. So if you had another dimension outside of it, like, how would that not be part of the universe that you're trying to fold? So what does that mean? You know, like, how are you actually achieving this folding? It's hard to say. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Great. That satisfies me uh, to an extent. Um. (laughs) (laughs) To the extent that anyone knows how bending four-dimensional space-time would look. Yeah. Uh, Well, I I just, yeah, okay. Well, to get some things I had here. Wait, unless, Tim, did you have any follow-up questions on all that? No. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, it's all math. Um, yeah, it's all math. <laughs> Tim, it was funny when you were pointing out, uh, yeah, or both of you guys were pointing out Sam Neill's performance style of like, he captures light and dark very well. It was interesting. I kind of plugged that into what the what people were talking about in the behind the scenes, what it was like working with him, is that he's just like a super like goofy, upbeat, like really fun guy. And it just made me think like, I wonder if that I don't know, when someone's is maybe always kind of riding that wavelength, if that means they can just kind of snap to the reverse of that in a sense too. You know, like their bubbles is always that wide. I don't know. And he's done it a lot, but it is a certain appeal 
to him that he is perfect for these films. And that's a unique thing about him or trait about him is how he carries himself normally. So I thought that was interesting. Um, did you I've guys heard that know- that's true for um, Michael Shannon as well, who's notoriously like cast as an evil dude or like a maniac or like a hardcore dude or whatever. And apparently he's like super affable, funny, like amazing sense of humor, like can do comedy, but never gets cast in it. <laughs> so like, I, who knows? Yeah. Um, I thought uh, it was so funny during it, Lawrence Fishburne's captain's chair. Like he he had like <laughs> two or three moments in it where it was just so funny where it was like, he rotated it back to a certain position and then got off of it. Like as if he had to like be facing a certain area before getting up off of it. It was so funny. And apparently the the director mentioned in the commentary that Lawrence Fishburne just loved that chair and had a, got a kick out of it. So I, I think that, that was, was very clear watching that on the movie. I was like, he loves messing with that thing. Like even as <laughs> yeah. he's talking to the other crew members on the bridge, like all he has to do is turn his head slightly to talk directly at a particular crew member, but instead he'll use his little joystick to turn like 10 <laughs> degrees, you know, this completely unnecessary chair. I loved it. <laughs> I, I have I have met Lawrence Fishburne a couple of times, was on uh, an episode of CSI where like basically we, he and I and a couple other people sat in like the video village area for like six hours straight while they, while they worked on a, a like setup for a scene and he is that guy. Like, he's the dude who just want, he like posted up, sat in his, you know, in his director's chair. Not that he was the director, but we all were in these, you know, these tall chairs. And he sat there and just held court. He like loved it, telling stories, like the whole thing. He's like the most like gregarious, just sort of like, hey, yeah, like listen to this. And then this one time and everything was cool. And then we did this and it was amazing. And blah, blah. like, he's just that guy. He's really fun. It was funny, Jason Isaacs uh, in one of his, you know, he was in this. He's great too. But uh, he said like, oh, everyone, you know, was kind of intimidated working with Lawrence Fishburne using Apocalypse Now, all this stuff. Um, So Jason Isaacs said he started calling him Florence just as a way to kind of lighten (laughs) up the mood and disarm everyone a little bit. And then everyone started calling him Florence on set. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah when talking about the uh the design of the ship tim you're uh pretty um pretty spot on it apparently was directly based on notre dame uh like they (laughs) i don't i don't know what this means but he said they scanned notre dame into a computer and then deconstructed it and so like the Weird. the spires on the like columns on the side of the ship they're like actually like Notre Dame columns that are like moved around and put upside down it's why we have like pseudo stained glass window motifs throughout the ship just everything Weird. like that that was funny that is interesting yeah did did they happen to explain the like the green tile bathhouse whatever that was like <laughs> no, where sorry yeah, where Lawrence Fishburne is giving his uh, zero G fire monologue, and in the background, there's there's like it looks like a fish tank almost, right? Where it's just the green liquid there, which later fills with blood in the kind oh, of yeah, shining right. ripoff uh, moment where blood cascades out of everywhere for some reason. Uh, but that room was so conspicuous; it kind of 
has a similar design to the med bay. Like Tim, you were saying it was maybe the med bay, but it's it's different. It's a different room, but it's not really clear where it is in the ship or what <laughs> is go what is supposed <laughs> yeah. to happen there. Like it's bizarre. <laughs> the the room with the big uh empty aquarium. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um maybe it's the liquid that that uh that they're that they're floating in. I don't know. Um, I thought oh, it was yeah, interesting maybe. to learn it took them four months to build that big old engine room set. A lot of work went into that. Uh, speaking of other duration facts, it took them 45 minutes to get into those suits. And then once they were in them, they could only walk around in them for like 10 minutes, if that. They were so heavy because of like the batteries God. of the lights and everything. They said that when they tried sitting down in a conventional chair, the chair would just break so they would, they like built these special like leaning, uh, uh, you know, half chairs for them to sort of like rest a little bit <laughs> while in those suits. Wow. Um, Ridiculous. It's a super rust post-production process. And that's where a lot of it comes into as far as what we're talking about, the CG, maybe some missing sequences here and there that could have helped flesh things out. It really sounds like it was all victim to just this rust, rust post-production. They did uh, an initial cut that was like 131 minutes, which was really the cut that they should have just internally worked on more themselves. But when they ended up showing it to a test audience, they were just, you know, the along with the studio, were just kind of like, oh, what is this? It's not scary enough, blah, 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 da, da, da. So then they just went extreme in the other direction and made it as short as possible. And then what they wanted to do that they would have done what have felt right is then kind of look at both and maybe strike a balance between them. But they just released that shorter cut because that's all the time that was left. Hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. I feel like that might have helped some of the 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 going insane transitional elements. I don't know. Yeah, um, it definitely feels like... Sequences. It definitely feels like there are a few scenes missing. Like one thing in particular I noticed was uh, when Weir says his line... Uh, I am home, right? Disappears into the darkness. Then we see him go to the engine room, do something. And then the next time we see him, he's actually on the Lewis and Clark having planted the explosive. But there's like the the transition there is just so abrupt. It's like, wait a minute, that's not where he was, right? Like at some point he walked all the way back down the long hallway, out the airlock, planted the explosive. And that's all uh, like off screen but in such a short period of time we we then see him walking off the lewis and clark it's kind of disorienting so yeah it it definitely seemed like there was some some cuts made uh that kind of reduced the coherency a little bit yeah Yeah. uh it was funny tim you know mentioning hellraiser apparently the spinning orb engine design did was directly inspired from the hellraiser cube or puzzle box it's cool. oh, interlocks yeah, nice. and all that. Um, I thought it was interesting learning about Sam Neill's and Lawrence Fishburne's different acting styles, where Sam Neill is more that kind of likes to feel the scene out, sort of do a few takes, figure it out kind of thing, get get rolling. And then Lawrence Fishburne shows up from like take one, he's done his job, like, or you know, is has an idea and goes for it. And then as the takes go on, we'll just kind of drift out of it, maybe forget lines or whatever. So that's why a lot of their uh, apparently like a lot of it is just that shot reverse shot mode of scenes between the two of them to really 
do what you're supposed to do. Take the best from each one, respective takes. That's always interesting, learning about different actors' approaches. Yeah, I thought in general there was a lot of shots of characters talking directly to camera, right? Mm. Like when they're conversing with each other, I noticed there's a lot of them where they're just, they're in the center of the frame talking directly at the camera and then you get a reverse shot and you look at who they're talking to and it, it seemed kind of conspicuous that it was happening a lot, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a box office failure, which is a bummer. Um, well, I saw that Wikipedia one. It only mentions the U.S. grow. So without knowing the full box uh, office Internationally, worldwide. it says it grossed about $16 million. So worldwide, $42 million, and it cost 60 Ah, okay. So they Ouch. still came up short. Maybe they made it up in uh, VHSs. Probably <laughs> yeah. from me alone, yeah. I think I rented this movie probably <laughs> a half dozen times. <laughs> uh, I remember really latching onto it because you have to remember like this is not a blockbuster. It's like a single room on the side of a grocery store. So I, and I, my, my interests were, my tastes were pretty narrow, right? Like horror and sci-fi movies. So I ended up renting the same stuff like week after week. So yeah, right. hopefully I contributed somewhat to redeeming <laughs> this, this film financially. <laughs> Yeah. Right, with look who's talking to or Event Horizon for the fourth time. You're going to go Event Horizon. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, cool. Are you guys good on your noteworthy things then? Yep. All right. Well, then we can wind down from journeying all the way to Event Horizon with some recommendations. Our special guest, do you have anything you'd like to recommend, Dad? We can start with you. Uh, yeah, I thought I would pick something I actually read a few months ago, but since I, I'm not a regular host, I, I thought I could get away with it. Uh, it's a book called The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher, uh, and it's a, it's a horror novel, right? Apparently all I'm interested in is horror, and so I read a horror novel, and it's a very good book, very surprising. Uh, the... The basic premise is that a woman goes to clean out the house of her recently deceased grandma, who was not a nice person, and it turns out a pretty big hoarder. So when she gets there, the job ends up being a lot bigger uh, than she bargained for, and so she ends up staying at the house, and then, uh, well, a lot of stuff happens. And it goes to some (laughs) interesting, surprising places. has some cosmic horror elements. I don't want to sell it as a cosmic horror book in its entirety, but it definitely is one of the more ambitious and kind of surprising horror novels I've read in a long time. So The Twisted Ones by T. Kingfisher. Awesome. Tim, how about you? Your uh, discussion on space-time made me think of a... um, a documentary that I think has gotten some criticism. So maybe, maybe you should, you can um, give your insight here, but I, I remember really like liking it as a, just a very rough guide to quantum physics, which is uh it's a documentary called what the bleep do what, what the, and then expletive, whatever those, you know, what the bleep do we know? Um, It's weird. And like some of it's, 
Oh, actually, a lot of it is incredibly hokey. But they also have a bunch of really amazing, you know, well-known astrophysicists and quantum mechanics people and whatever interviewed, and they they have insights and such, and it's cool. So check that out. <laughs> now I saw that in theaters in Santa Cruz when I was in college. I remember. <laughs> I saw that at the Art House Theater on Mill Avenue when I was in college. Yeah, when that came out. <laughs> I think that movie has also spawned a sequel. I think uh, you're right. As well, which I have never seen. But yeah, I remember thinking that it was pretty hokey. And overall, it might have been one of the uh, cases of kind of misuse of quantum mechanics to <laughs> explain various metaphysical uh, ideas. Right. Like people who read quantum physics and, you know, they hear about the weird stuff. Right. They immediately want to start connecting it and using it to explain, you know, things like, I don't know, astral projection and like all these kinds of metaphysical concepts or pseudoscientific concepts. And so I thought the documentary was somewhat guilty of that. But there is definitely some interesting stuff in there and some some good explanations of basic concepts. I feel like anything that gets someone to even consider or be open to the possibility that like plants like classical music or whatever, I think that's cool. So (laughs) (laughs) great. (laughs) Um, For my recommendation, I just went and saw the new film Pig with Nicolas Cage. Have you guys seen that? I really want to. It's cool. It's uh Definitely not, you know, it's, it's, he's in vogue late of, uh, of, you know, um, we didn't see Willie's Wonderland. That looked terrible, but you know, oh, Nick Cage going crazy, you know, color out of space and Mandy. This was, you know, completely different kind of film. So you wouldn't want that, those kinds of expectations, but it, it captured a very, uh, authentically lonely mood that I found, um, uh, refreshing in its, authenticity authenticity and um yeah it was really affecting and would you call kind it kind of f- fun story what it was what would you call it a horror film because i've been sort of deliberately staying away from plot details but from what i can tell i i can't even be convinced i guess that it's in the horror genre i'm not really sure what it is i would i would not but it's uh it's a moody enough intense drama that's kind of I don't know. It's it captures its own unique kind of tone. I could maybe see someone like coming out with that feeling just because of how kind of dark and depressing the whole thing is and nihilistic in a way. But okay. uh, I wouldn't overtly call it that. All right, I'm uh, still in. I'm still on board. Great, check it out, pig. Great. Well. <laughs> We got to decide on next week's film here, even though Andy won't be here to join us, but we would love it if you could send us off and tell Tim when to stop swirling his hand. All right. I know there's a lot of good stuff in there. I've submitted some of it at some point. (laughs) Uh, Stop. I have pulled, or I'll pull it up to the camera. Oh, Equinox from 1970. Awesome. This is that um, Dennis Murin film, I want to say. The special effects artist. And he made some like stop motion film that uh, is supposed to be cool and kind of homegrown or something like that. Uh, Awesome. Yeah, and I've always wanted to see it. 
So great. I forgot that was in there. <laughs> I'm excited great. for that Good. one. I've never even heard of that one before. Yeah, me so. neither. Cool. Good pull. Thank you. All right. Well, Dr. Andrew Williams, thank you so much for joining us today and providing your, your insight and enthusiasm for the genre. And oh. uh, well, an insight into math as well. It's fun. Well, thanks so much for having me. This this film was a, a great choice. Like I said, I, I really have a personal affection for it. And yeah, <laughs> I hope my my small ramble about four-dimensional folding was not uh, too much. Hopefully it was just the right amount of opening a portal to hell. So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And, we'll find uh, out. Forever thank you as the as I put it, the godfather to this show. It was appropriate to have you on here for asking me way back when about, hey, have you thought about having a horror podcast? And Tim and I here are doing our best to keep the keep the dream, keep the tradition alive, so to speak. All right. I love it. I I <laughs> eagerly await the next episode. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, as always, you can find us wherever you found us. Blah, 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 blah. Our big ask is do tell a friend if you made it this far. We got an email. Let us know your thoughts. Submit a film that you want to hear us talk about. All that good stuff. Tim, anything you got? No. Have a great week, everybody. (laughs) Great. All right. (laughs) Well, with that, in closing, liberate tutamet ex inferis. And thanks for listening. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. 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 (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.